0: Something uh, something else apart from prayer uh, and singing that we do that is central to what we do uh, when we gather together as a church is we come together around God's Word. We read the Bible uh, and we, we listen to it and that's what we're going to do now. Uh, it's quite a long reading from, uh, it's a poem uh, called the Psalms. It's Psalm 104 so we're going to read it. Uh, you can follow along with us uh, there. On the screen. So Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendour and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations, it can never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains, they went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into their ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the air nest by their waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for mankind to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of people, oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Babylon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the pine trees. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the conies. The moon marks off the seasons and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labour until evening. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made all of them. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the leviathan which you formed to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to Him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord.
1: Thank you, Marshall. Welcome to church. Uh, If you've joined us in here, it's good to see um, us kind of full and... um, if you're in the hall, if you're live streaming from home, hello to you. Uh, my name is Pete and um, I wanted to uh, begin by letting you know of some of the, the, the myths that have been busted by science. Okay, so I don't know if you realize that uh, it doesn't take seven years to digest gum, much as your parents freaked you out about that one when you were young, that dropping a penny from the Empire State Building will not crack your skull open. That was a myth. How about the myth that humans only use 10% of our brains? Apparently, that's a myth too. How about this one? This one surprised me that water actually doesn't drain in different directions in the North and South Hemisphere. That's a myth. We have a dog, and it is not true that a dog's mouth is cleaner than a human's. (laughs) And a myth that lightning never strikes the same place twice has also been myth-busted. Okay, so there's some of the myths busted by science. They're kind of the more humorous ones, but um, more serious, I'll, I'll let you know of a, an important one that uh, used to, uh, for you know, hundreds of years, people thought that uh, the human body was made up of four humors. Have you heard of this? The humor theory of the body, not humor as in ha-ha humor, but the four humors are black bile, yellow bile, phlegm, and blood. And our bodies are made from that, and sickness is due to these humors being imbalanced in our bodies. And so treatment, this was medical treatment in the Middle Ages, would include draining blood, you know, those leeches and stuff like that, or cutting you open. They would use arsenic to treat you. They would cause vomiting, because all of that would try to balance your humors. Aren't we glad that science myth busted that? See, the power of science is undoubtedly all around us. The scientific revolution from the last few hundred years has given us almost everything we take for granted. Technology, uh, space travel, computers, our phones, modern medicine, and really um, uh, relevant to us now, vaccines. And so our optimism and our confidence in science, well, that's absolutely warranted. Science has so much explanatory power. So, is Christianity one of those ancient myths, like the humor theory of the body, that science now has the power to disprove? Well, that's certainly what um, atheist, biologist Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, thinks. He says, I think science really has fulfilled the need that religion did of the past, of explaining things, explaining why we're here, what is the origin of life, where did the world come from, what life is all about. Science has. The answers. You see, he's very confident to say, no more need of God and religion, Christianity, Buddhism, whatever your religion, science has all the answers. And when it comes to science disproving God or religion, there's usually three areas that people talk about. The first is miracles. I mean, Christianity is really based on the miraculous. You've got the burning bush. You've got the ten plagues. You've got the Red Sea being parted. You've got the virgin birth of Jesus. You've got Jesus walking on water, feeding 5,000, raising the dead. And of course, central to Christianity is Jesus himself rises from the dead. And so people like Dawkins will say, well, science will show that what is called miraculous is either false observation or false testimony or something that actually has, in modern times, a per- perfectly um, simple scientific explanation. It is, for example he gives the example. For example, if you um, took a light bulb and went back in time, and a working light bulb, by the way, and went back in time um, to the first century, people back then would have thought, well, here is something miraculous, right? There's light without fire. But of course, we know that light bulb, you know, how light bulbs work. It has to do with electricity. So what seems miraculous to to an ancient culture, is actually perfectly scientifically explainable. And that's what miracles are. The second is, of course, creation. In that evolutionary theory, especially, means that we now don't need need a uh, religious explanation. And surely, if if you believe in a seven-day creation account or a young earth, evolution has done away with that as a better explanation. So that's the second one. And the third evidence is usually this one, that faith in this view is actually believing in what you have no evidence for scientifically. That's what faith means, is believing in stuff that you can't prove scientifically. And so Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, says, well, you cannot be a serious scientific thinker and still hold to religious belief. So science would make faith, in this case, useless and unreasonable. Okay, that's pretty much, I mean, you know, you can read books and books and books about that, but they're the really three biggest arguments that science disproves God. Now, before we look at um, how this may not be true and this may not be the case, uh, let's let's kind of survey the field a little bit more. and I want to kind of think about what is science. And those of you um, like me who may have come from a more humanities arts background, okay, um, this is really helpful to know, right? because it's easy to, to, to misunderstand what a lot of scientists themselves know. And even if you have a science background, it's actually really important to know this as well. So let me firstly, by talking about, firstly talk about how science and religion, and it doesn't matter what religion at this point, but science and religions can relate in four different ways. Sort of along a spectrum. Okay? Conflict, dialogue, integration, and independence. You see, there's not just one way that science and religion relate, and people like Dawkins will only talk about the one way. And and, and for him, it's mainly the conflict way, okay? It's creationism or evolutionism. They're in conflict, they both can't be true. But that's only one way that science and religion relate. Um, and, and some Christians, and you may have come from this uh, view, that, well, on the other end of the spectrum, because of the conflict view, we, we need to go into the independence view. That is, we just need to retreat, right? That, that, that um, Christianity, religious belief, it's just private belief. You, you leave science alone, completely alone, and I just believe on faith, no evidence, that these things are true. That's the other extreme, independence, Now, I reckon that both extremes are unhelpful, because there are plenty of scientists, and you've heard from Miriam, and I don't know if you heard, she she quickly glossed over that she was a PhD, okay? Um, She said, bachelor's, master's, and PhD. I think she's just being humble. She's actually a PhD. She's Dr. Miriam, okay? Um, So there's plenty of scientists like Miriam who are believers in God and think that actually the other two, dialogue. And integration are actually much more valuable ways as science and religion relate. Um, I'll give you another example from... This is an atheist um, biologist, uh, evolutionary biologist. His name is Stephen Jay Gould. But quite unlike Dawkins, this is what he says. I mean, he's still an atheist. He died, but he is still an atheist. He says, Either half my colleagues are enormously stupid, or else the science of Darwinism is fully compatible with conventional religious beliefs and equally compatible with atheism. You see, you don't have to take an either-or conflict view of science and religion, even if you're an atheist. What can you know with science? Here's We need to go a little bit further. You see, there is a big problem when people make science the standard by which we judge all kinds of true knowledge. Right, Guys like Dawkins will make you think that science is the only knowledge we have and only things that are, uh, that are arrived by scientific knowledge are true knowledge. But that's clearly not the case. Let me just show you a bunch of things that we know. So you can say that I know that washing your hands can, can prevent infections. That's pretty handy at this moment, isn't it? What about this one? I know that Julius Caesar was assassinated. I know that one plus one equals two. I'm married to Karen, I know that my wife loves me, or fifthly, I know that genocide is wrong. Do You see, each of these five ways of knowing are different. Let me show you how they're different. The first is called inductive knowledge. The second is called historical knowledge. The third is called deductive or mathematical knowledge. The fourth is called personal knowledge, and the fifth is called moral knowledge. All of them are true, aren't they? How many of them are technically scientific knowledge? Have a think. How many? Let me reveal. Only one. The scientific method is inductive. Induction is when you observe phenomena and you come up with a theory. You guys remember high school science? A hypothesis that best explains the data. And then you go back and confirm or modify the hypothesis. That's scientific knowledge. That's what set off the scientific revolution. That's what got rid of the four-humor theory of the body because you cannot inductively observe the four humors, right? Now that's different to deductive knowledge. You see number three, deductive knowledge, one plus one equals two. Deduction is actually the only kind of knowledge of those five that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt deductive mathematical knowledge is the only one you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. Alright? You got that? These things are still true, but there's only one of them you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that's because of the kind of knowledge it is. It's deduction, it's mathematical knowledge. One plus one will always equal two. Which actually means you cannot prove evolution is true beyond the shadow of a doubt. Now before you creationists rejoice, neither can you prove any other non-mathematical type of knowledge. You cannot prove creationism beyond a shadow of a doubt either. Because the only kind of knowledge you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt remember is which one? Deductive mathematical knowledge. But that's okay, there's lots of things we we know are true that we cannot prove beyond a shadow of a doubt because they fall into other categories. To expect that we have to prove everything beyond a shadow of a doubt in order for it to be true is actually assuming that everything is one kind of knowledge, deductive mathematical knowledge. And even science is not primarily deductive mathematical knowledge. Mathematics helps science, especially if you're into physics, but strictly speaking, science is inductive knowledge. And I'll tell you why math is not strictly speaking um, counted or equated with scientific knowledge. You know the uh, Persians, sorry, the Arabs and the Greeks were really, really good at maths, right? But they were all good at maths. Chinese too. Sorry, we've got to take credit for that. Right? All of these cultures, ancient cultures, had mathematics, really good advanced mathematics, but they all believed in really unscientific things like the four humor theory of the body. They were pre-scientific revolution. Maths existed long before the scientific revolution, all right? So math in itself, deductive knowledge is also just one kind of knowledge. Science is inductive, and science is but one way of knowing. This is really important. Science deals with the natural realm and natural causes. That's what science is meant to observe, natural causes. It's not the realm of science to figure out miracles. And it's overreach to expect that science can answer all kinds of knowledge and be the basis for all types of knowledge. It's called, it's called reductionism, okay? Reductionism is thinking that everything can be reduced to one thing. And that's clearly not the case. So let's talk about the limits of science. I'll tell you a few things that are beyond science. The first thing that's beyond science is disproving miracles, right? Science cannot disprove miracles. Again, because science deals with the realm of inductive knowledge It deals with the natural realm, natural causes, but it cannot disprove that there may be other causes than natural ones. You got that? It's beyond its scope. Now, I want to show you an interesting thing when it comes to the parting of the Red Sea. Look what it says there in Exodus in the Bible's account. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back, notice this, with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. I hope you see from there, this miracle of the parting of the Red Sea, for Christians who believe in the Bible, it doesn't have to be an either or. It's either a miracle or natural causes. This is actually one case in which a miracle, you're given a natural cause. And that's not surprising for Christians because we believe that God is involved all the time. He is the supernatural cause behind all natural phenomena, not just Odd ones like the Red Sea parting, but even ordinary ones, ordinary ones like us breathing. I'll talk about that more in a moment. Right? Science deals with the observable and the natural, but it is beyond its scope to try and prove or disprove the supernatural. And so Miriam, Dr. Miriam was completely right. Science itself cannot prove or disprove God. The scientific method cannot prove or disprove God. Because God, by definition, is beyond the realm of inductive processes. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have evidence for God whatsoever. And I'll come to that in a moment. But, do you see? Science itself cannot prove or disprove God. And so what really matters when it comes to whether someone believes in God or not, scientist or not, is what's called a presupposition. What is it that you already presuppose? Right? That's the foundation of knowledge. And everyone has presuppositions. And so, if you have the presupposition, like uh, followers of Jesus do, that God exists, then why can't he do what we would call, in scientific terms, maybe an anom- um, anomaly? Right? Why can't he do an anomaly that doesn't fit our c- current scientific models? He certainly can. If you presuppose that there is an almighty God who can create the universe, he certainly can do something that doesn't quite at that stage or that point fit our scientific models. And I hope you saw that kind of view of God um, in that long reading we had. There's a reason why I wanted us to hear all of those 30 or so verses from Psalm 104, and I won't read it again. But see, the Bible's view and a Christian's view of God is not God the... Um, people in the past have thought God is like a, you know, like a divine clockmaker. You wind up the, he wound up the clock and He just let it run, hands off. And that's, that's what they thought the universe was like. God wound it up and then everything, all the processes just went on like clockwork. That's not the view of God of the Bible. And it certainly isn't the view of Psalm 104. Did you not see how it describes God as actively controlling every natural process in the world, second by second? All right? He's actually intimately involved. And isn't it great that He does it in, in a regular way? because he's intimately involved in the natural world in a regular regular way, that's the reason we can do science. That's the reason we can inductively discover the laws of science, because he does it in a regular way. But it means that he can, if he chooses, as an exception to the rule, for example, he could make an apple fall up from a tree rather than down, just as an anomaly, He can certainly do so, and he can do so because every atom and every subatomic particle of the universe, in the Bible's view, holds together at any given moment due to his active control. He wants to make an apple go up, he certainly can. Now, if he did this, it doesn't invalidate or contradict the laws of physics, because these laws are induced from how God usually does things every other observable time when an apple falls from a tree, it goes down. Do you see what I mean? But if he wanted to create an anomaly that once it goes up, it doesn't make gravity all of a sudden not a valid law. No, we still do science based on the law of gravity because every other time, that's exactly what happens. And we induce the law of gravity from that. Very simplified way. Ask me about it later. Um, and this is the reason why um, there's an Oxford uh, professor. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's got doctorates in both science and theology he actually says, and I think he's right, he says most of his scientific colleagues who are atheists are atheists for reasons other than science. I mean, you can be an atheist because of personal reasons or experiential reasons or moral reasons or upbringing. But it's mostly on the presuppositional level. It's not because of science they're atheists. It's because of other reasons. And I think that's largely true. You see, the reason that people can believe in God and miracles and be top scientists is because they understand that while, as scientists, they work out natural explanations and causes for things, science has limits. And that was my first point. Science does have limits. And believe it or not, science cannot disprove creation. Often evolution is used as the knockdown argument. If you believe in evolution, you cannot believe in God. Well, that doesn't actually follow. That's just going for a conflict model of science and religion. And that's not the model that's the best way to serve. You see, if you're going to go from evolution, therefore atheism, that kind of link, that requires actually not a scientific leap of logic. It's actually a philosophical leap of logic. Evolution right, is said to do away with the need for God as an explanation for the diversity of of the natural world. But that's not the only thing you can see out of evolution. Because many believers are happy to see that evolution, in fact, is the process in which God brought about the diversity of the... See, again, your presuppositions matter enormously, right? You can actually believe in God and evolution. Uh, Francis Collins, who is uh, an evolutionary... Um, sorry, he's a science, scientist. He's actually one of the top scientists currently in the world as well. He... He was formerly the head of the Human Genome Project and mapped out the human genome. He firmly believes in evolution as a Christian, but he is not a philosophical atheist. Okay, So you can't believe in evolution and God, and maybe it, it would therefore commit you to a non-seven-day, non-young-earth view of creation in the Genesis accounts. But in case you think that that kind of reading of Genesis 1 and 2 is a cop-out because you know, of the scientific revolution, just keep in mind that in the 4th century, St. Augustine had that view of Genesis 1 and 2. St. Augustine in the 4th century said that the days may not be literal days, 24-hour days, but eons. All right? And this was long before the scientific revolution. It's actually okay to believe in creation as well as evolution. Francis Collins is that example. And thirdly, here's another really important limit. There are really important things that we hold on to life, in life, love, morality, history. And these types of knowledge are especially central to Christianity. And as I said before, they are simply beyond science. If you reduce everything to science, and if you marry that with atheism, the belief that people like Dawkins has, then you've also got to think really differently about these three things love, morality, and history. Love would only be brain chemistry and hormones, just a way for us to propagate the species. That's what it reduces it to. If you only have a scientific view of love, then love is pretty much a mixture of chemistry and hormones, it's an illusion. But no one I know really finds that explanation very satisfying when you are in love or when you deeply love someone to want to be faithful to them in monogamous marriage for life. It doesn't explain that. Science can't explain that. Morality, if you reduce everything to science, is just convention and what works. There's actually no real morality and certainly no absolutes. If you go with a purely evolutionary view of morality, then why not devour the weak or commit genocide if the race you are trying to wipe out is weaker? We have to propagate the species, don't we? And if there are no absolutes, then what about some cultures that think pedophilia and incest are okay or human sacrifice? You see, science alone cannot give us morality. See, against Dawkins, we want to say that faith is not belief in the irrational or something that has no evidence. Faith is believing on evidence, but it may not be scientific evidence because there's more than one way of knowing. See, ultimately, Christianity is historical. And if you were with us um, two weeks ago about the Bible and whether the Bible is fake news or good news, I, I hope you got some of that and. If you didn't hear it, uh, or if you still want more, come along to Fresh, which I'll tell you about later on, our Tuesday night coffee and dessert and dialogue type thing, because we'll look at the Bible in a bit more detail. But ultimately, Christianity is historical. It's that kind of knowledge. I believe in God because God actually walked into the pages of history in Jesus. And Christianity is not just historical, it's also personal. Remember those other kinds of knowledge, personal knowledge, as well as experiential I know God exists, like I know that my wife loves me. I cannot prove that scientifically, but neither can I prove scientifically that Karen loves me. But I still know it to be true because it's a personal and experiential knowledge. You see, once you see the limits of science, then you see that Christianity and belief in God actually can integrate with science. But let's go a step further. I want to actually say that Christianity can enhance science, and this is especially you if you have a science background or you're interested in science. I don't know if you know that it's actually Christianity that made the scientific revolution start in the West and not the East. As much as I take pride on being Chinese, the scientific revolution did not start in China and in the East. And it's because you can compare the worldviews of the time. Eastern worldviews and Eastern religions are often cyclical. The physical, the observable, is basically an illusion that cannot really be trusted because your goal is to transcend, right? To go to nirvana or some other transcending out of the physical, In Eastern views, logic and reasoning are not as important as spirituality and escape. Now, under those conditions, in that worldview, it's very hard for the scientific revolution to come about, isn't it? But it was in the West, with the Christian worldview, that science actually was given birth. Because in the Christian worldview, the world makes sense. Even from Psalm 104, God made an orderly and observable world because it reflects something of His character. He is orderly and reasonable. And most importantly, the Bible says that God made human beings to be a little bit like God. We're made in God's image. And so we can actually have the capacity to observe the world and make proper inductive knowledge out of it. You see, atheism believe it or not, actually undermines science ultimately. You see, if you are a firm believer in atheistic evolution, it doesn't actually in the end give you a good foundation to really trust your ability to reason and do science. Don't take it from me. Take it from Charles Darwin, the father of evolution. He actually wrote this in a letter, the 3rd of July, 1881, with me. The horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there were any convictions in such a mind? You take it all the way to its logical conclusion and evolutionary explanations of our mind does not give us Good evidence or good good reason to believe that our minds are working properly when we observe the world and make hypotheses. You've got to assume that it's true first. That's your presupposition. The presupposition that your mind is working properly when you do science does not itself come from science. That makes science possible. right? And if you go atheistic and take that to its logical end, that presupposition is not self-evident. But if you're a Christian, you can make that presupposition because, again, God made us in His own image. There's something reliable about the way we observe the world and the conclusions we draw. Okay, you got that? Last of all, what about this? Christianity enhances science because of wonder. Uh, Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, will say that lots of scientists like Einstein and Stephen Hawking They often borrow religious language, even if they're not religious themselves, to communicate some of the wonder that they observe in the natural world as they do science. See, the more science you do, and Miriam made that point, the more science you do, the more you are filled with marvel and wonder. Now, Dawkins' point with this is that you don't need God okay, to be in wonder of nature, to experience that wonder. For Dawkins, he actually will say, that sense of wonder as you observe the world, that's why people invented God. You don't need God, but he can see why people invented God for that. Now, it's true that you don't have to be a believer in God to experience wonder. Clearly, Dawkins does. Clearly, Stephen Hawking does. They're both atheists. But I kind of want to suggest, is atheism the best explanation for that sense of wonder? Like, Why would you observe the world and be filled with wonder if you are a consistent atheist? If we are no more than just highly evolved animals, then why wonder? I mean, my dog does not stare and wonder when it observes the world, and it's certainly not inventing God in the process of its wonder. But atheism actually says we're essentially not that different from the lower animals. See, atheistic evolution has difficulty explaining other non-material things, consciousness is one of them wonder you can't really explain wonder you can't really explain joy and exuberance all of these things i want to suggest to you that christianity is much more satisfying that you can be a christian and do science and observe the natural world and be filled with wonder and worship the god that stands behind it all and it's so satisfying when you experience wonder to declare it in praise like the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of god The skies proclaim the work of His hands. But even better than all of this, the best part of Christianity, as opposed to cold, hard atheism, or even other religions, is that this creator God actually cares about us. All right? He cares about us. In uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, he's had some famous debates with a Christian, um, also professor in mathematics, a guy called John Lennox. In 2008, after the first debate, he conceded some ground, which is quite surprising. And he, his opening statement in his second debate is this. Just note what he said there. He said, I could almost accept that, as, that a reasonable case could be made for the sort of God who creates the universe and set up the laws. But... I cannot believe that a God who could do all that and who created the heavens and invented gravity and the rest would bother to have any special interest in this one tiny little speck of a planet and the lives and the sins of this one little petty race living on that speck. That's pretty big for Dawkins to concede that much. But do you see what he's saying? Why would God care? Why would God care? Well, the true wonder of the Christian God of the Bible is that He does care. He really does. In this book of Psalms, Psalm 8, says this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mind- mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. The writer of this poem, this song, also wonders the same thing, but he doesn't He doesn't come to the same conclusions as Dawkins. Because in fact, you read the rest of the Bible and God has the answer to why he bothers, even though he's such a big God. And this is God's answer. You are my creation. This beautiful and fascinating and discoverable world was made for my glory, but also for your enjoyment. And even though you're broken, I love you. And even though you're sinful and rebellious, I want you and I want to be with you. So I will come and I will enter history in order to live alongside you. And I will live the perfect life that you should have lived. And I will die the death on the cross that you should have died. So I can take your place. And I will rise again three days later, and I will give myself to you in order to bring you to me. That's God's answer in the Bible. And I want to say more about that next week, so do come back for it. You see, if you push God out of science, you end up with a cold, meaningless world. But if you bring science into God, you end up with a world that is meaningful and discoverable and fascinating and ultimately redeemable. Now, I didn't mention at the beginning, but again, every week we have questions. If you want to text in a question, it'll take you to a Google form on that link. Please do so now. I may not be able to answer all of them today, depending on time. What is the time? I may be able to get to one or two, but we will um, have a forum to answer them. I'll tell you about it, a bit more about it after we sing the next song. So um, let's get the band up. Let's uh, Let's hear a song. And, um, and then I'll come back and explain some more things that you can get into. But if you have any questions, now is a good time to text them in. Thanks.